Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. We're in lockdown still, so I'm joined remotely from distant, soggy Geltsdale by author and illustrator Mark Richards. How are you doing, Mark? Have you survived the stormy onslaught? Well, we've had rain, we've had snow. Uh, in fact, we had a landslide yesterday morning, and uh, fortunately the farmer brought his uh, uh, big digger down and cleared the um, soil from our track, otherwise we'd have been incarcerated. So today, Mark, we're doing something a little bit different. We're straying into territory that we haven't looked at before on Country Stride. We're talking about pilgrimage, and we're talking about those long walks that people make for spiritual reasons. We've got two guests today, and each of them have crafted their own pilgrimages in the Lake District and in Cumbria more widely. There aren't many established pilgrim routes in the county. Uh, I think there's four or five in all, but we have two of the uh, creators of them today, which is fabulous. And who are our guests today, Mark? Well, we've got John Fleetwood from Garnet Bridge near Kendall who climbs mountains, does alpine traverses, and he's imposed a similar kind of concept within the Lake District and created a Lakeland pilgrimage. But it's far more about engaging with that amazing landscape, but feeling the spiritual content on the journey. So that's one of them. And the second one is Stephen Wright from Mungrisdal, who was captivated by St. Kentigern, who'd walked from Iona to Glasgow, and recognised that St Kendigan was very evidenced in North Cumbria, and so he created a journey to represent that experience. So the Kendigan way of his own links together nine churches dedicated to St Kendigan. So we've got these two pilgrimage routes in Cumbria. We've got the Kentigan Way, 87 miles, and a Lakeland pilgrimage, 175 miles. Uh, And we're also going to talk, as you noted there, Mark, about Cumbria's very own saint, St Kentigan. And of course, actually, we went to one of the many St Kentigan churches on a recent podcast where we went to Keswick. Stephen Matthews gave us a a marvellous episode about Canon Rawnsley. And uh, we started in the church out there. And that's a lovely, lovely church at Crosswaite. Crosswaite, that's right. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the highs and lows of taking a, a personal journey like this and what you take away from a pilgrimage when you get home because it's not just about the experience. And I think a lot of this is relevant also to those of us who love long-distance walking. I'm not uh, a religious person myself, but I think if you get into that swing of a long-distance walk your relationship both with the landscape and with yourself changes over time and so I'm really interested to hear what John and Stephen have to say. So let's get on to the Zoom airwaves and go and meet Stephen and John. Well, it's great to be in your company, John and Stephen, and I'm sure our listeners would really love to know a little bit about you. John, can you give us a bit of a clue uh, as to 
who you are, where you're based and what pilgrimage you actually created. Uh, my name's John Fleetwood. I've been living in the Lake District for 23 years, I think now. And I live at uh, Garnet Bridge in Long Sleddle, which is a, a little valley just north of Kendall. Lovely place to live. In my day job, I actually research uh, sustainable investment funds and uh, created a business on that. Outside of that, I spend lots of times on the fells, uh, either scrambling, a bit of mountaineering, walking, running. And uh, my pilgrimage is just simply called the Lakeland Pilgrimage, which covers 175 miles in a very wiggly route all over the lakes. Fabulous. It sounds really good. We'll enjoy hearing more about that. And Stephen, a little bit about yourself and, and your pilgrimage. I'm Stephen Wright. I too have been living in the Lake District for a pretty much the same time as John Reed, about 23, 24 years now. My primary activity is, even though I'm technically speaking retired, I work as a spiritual director for a charity based here in Cumbria, uh, set up by nurses and doctors decades ago to provide teachings in the healing arts and space for retreat and recuperation, which, as you can imagine, in this time is really heavily in use at the moment, helping those people who are spiritual seekers, not necessarily part of any denomination, and that occupies a lot of my time. The pilgrimage idea arose after I walked my first pilgrimage, becoming a member of the Iona community. I started walking from Iona to Glasgow for being hallowed as a member of the community. I became interested in, intrigued by the life of our local saint, had been since I came to Livia, actually, St. Kentagon, also known as uh, Mungo. And then out of that grew the idea of the first Lakeland pilgrimage, which was walking around the Northern Fells, a complete circuit of the Northern Fells, to nine churches associated with Kentigan, and latterly another pilgrimage down in Grasmere by doing a pilgrimage walk around the Lake of Grasmere itself. Well, it would be really interesting, Stephen, if you could give us a little bit of a perspective on what pilgrimage's origins are. This is pre-Christianity, I suppose. For millennia, human beings have undertaken pilgrimage. It wasn't for everybody, but the notion of a pilgrimage grew in all traditions, all religions have it, of the notion that you would go to a particular place in search of something other, a connection with the divine, healing, some kind of sacred site that was associated with your particular tradition. You have in this country things like uh, Stonehenge down in the south of England. You've got the tremendous pilgrimage sites and the stone circles of Orkney, which we're now recognising are probably a much earlier tradition than even those of Stonehenge. But those weren't just built for people of the locality to go to. They will be places that people might go to just once in a lifetime. We look at the example of one particular excavation done at Stonehenge, there was a person there we know from his grave and his grave goods and so on. He actually came from Central Europe. That same pattern in human consciousness is found, for example, in Maberhenge, Long Meg and her daughters, Castlerig. People would gravitate to these things for social reasons, for tribes to meet together, for spiritual reasons, for particular rituals, for times and so on and so forth. But the idea of making the journey to a particular place in search of something within yourself, in communion with the absolute, with other persons, is replicated in the modern understanding of pilgrimage. The same pattern is at work there. You 
step out of your normal rhythm of life, your normal way of living, your normal place of living, maybe the people you have, and you would go somewhere else and use nature, the landscape, to feed you into that different landscape inside yourself where you're seeking for more than what ordinary reality can give you. And the word pilgrim, where does that derive? Um, it has its roots in the whole notion of peregrination, which we give the name to peregrine falcon, the idea that something is wandering. A peregrinator is somebody who wanders, who looks for something, is a foreigner going from one place to another, looking for something. It's not a random wandering. It's not somebody like somebody becoming a tramp and just wandering around. It's a purposeful wandering. How do we differentiate between a long-distance walk uh, and a pilgrimage? You can travel, walk, move around in any form, and you can travel either as tourist or as pilgrim. What makes the difference is the intention, the consciousness with which you do it. You can come to the Lake District as a tourist, and I make no judgment about whether that's Better or worse, it simply is one way of experiencing the lake. You come because you like to see historical monuments, you come for beauty, you come for the landscape, you come for the wildlife, you come for a good meal somewhere, whatever it might be, you can travel anywhere as a tourist. Tourism is essentially keeping yourself entertained. You're having an experience of something, you're filling yourself up. Now, sometimes within that, intention otherwise you're also searching for something else or you're found by something else you find yourself thinking i'm just having a walk in the hills today but suddenly in that walk you feel inspired or get some insight you see a different angle on a problem in life or whatever it might be the pilgrim however explicitly intentionally is seeking those insights you draw upon the landscape and you intentionally peregrinate, you wander in order to be receptive to whatever it is in your life that you are seeking at that time. You may be seeking to deal with a problem in life. You may be seeking a different connection with nature, with reality, with your purpose in life, whatever it might be. So the critical word for me is intention. What marks out the difference between being a tourist or a pilgrim? Um, I think I'll turn to John here now because when you think of a pilgrimage or a journey, of the nature we're talking about, we're talking about something longer than a day trip. You're going out there into the environment with a longer vision. How would you view this, John? Yes, I think you can do a pilgrimage over a shorter period, but it's easier with a long journey. Because what tends to happen, I think we all experience this, we have the voices going around in our head, the thoughts of where we've come from, and it needs time to actually silence some of those voices. So there can be things as benign as, you know, what did I have for breakfast or what am I going to have for my next meal? Worrying about some aspect of your finances or, or it, it could be anything that your mind wanders on. And uh, it doesn't have to be a worry, but it could be just very everyday stuff. And th those are lost when you go on a, on a long journey. To get into the rhythm of the journey, that's a really important thing about pilgrimage, this rhythm. And it's, it's a lovely, simple rhythm where there's very little to think about. Every day has a structure to it, which is similar. And so with time, those voices are, are stilled and you really start, I think, to connect more deeply 
with the landscape that you're actually moving through. So, and it's very difficult to connect at that level with all those voices going around. And that, again, lends itself to solo experience rather than a, a group activity. And also, it can be somewhat more hard or arduous. Well, one of the interesting things about pilgrimage, I think it was often seen as a, as a thing of penance, particularly in days gone by. And still today, there's a concept of penance. I myself wouldn't actually subscribe to that view of pilgrimage. But there's something about it, perhaps, it doesn't need to be, but if there is some um, arduousness to the, to the journey, something difficult about it, then like anything difficult, I think there's a sense of, well, first of all, of satisfaction. But also, I think once you've been through that experience, it does actually help you to connect with where you are. Maybe not particularly at the time, but certainly afterwards. I think we've all got those experiences of going through storms and, and so on. And, and um, there's a special quality to those moments. And I think a pilgrimage is, is not about a sort of Wordsworth vision of going through the flowers and the sun's always shining. It, it's, it's not like that. So, John, is there something about putting one foot in front of the other that has some place in all this? Certainly, it has a, a mesmeric quality to it, or certainly can have a mesmeric quality to it. And it's very much part of this rhythm. We're almost in the rhythm of nature. There's something about moving, actually, at three miles per hour, which is incredibly natural. It's how we were designed to be. It would be useful, uh, Stephen, if you can uh, give us a little bit of your feeling about this pace-to-pace process. Like John, I'm rather sceptical about seeing pilgrimage as penance. Um, that was certainly something as, in certain religious traditions that somehow you had to suffer, otherwise you weren't going to get to God without it. So I'm, I'm very sceptical about the notion of having to do uh, pilgrimage in order to punish yourself to get to something. Nevertheless, there can be a quality of suffering in pilgrimage because it takes you into that, you are stretched. You can be stretched physically, you can be stretched psychologically, you can be stretched spiritually because you're putting yourself in the liminal space that John is speaking of where you you get out of the ordinary rhythms of life in order to fall into a, a different rhythm. If you're the busy, busy kind of person, but you give yourself over to walking and you're leaving the car behind and the bike or whatever, there's only so fast you can go. What pilgrimage to do by moving into this rhythm, it takes you into the moment. You have to deal with each step in front of you as you walk. You learn in the Zen tradition of simply being in the moment. And you recognize that you can spend an awful lot of your time and attention giving time and attention to things that don't exist, the future or the past. They're not real, but we give huge amounts of attention to them. Pilgrimage helps you by stepping one step after the You have to deal with what's in front of you at the time. You get lost in it. And yes, I think there is a, a hypnotic quality to it. As you pace yourself, you have to walk to a certain rhythm. You become receptive to your inner voice, your inner promptings, to insight, to revelation, to understanding, because you're in a space that permits you to see things differently. 
I did a stretch recently from here to Carlisle, and boy, did I find what I could walk 10 years ago. I can't do at the same pace that I used to do. 30 years, 13 miles really pushes me now. Then that brings me insights. How am I adjusting to aging, to masculinity, to all those kind of things? But there is that notion of pilgrimage can stretch you at every level if you're prepared to give yourself to it. Well, now we've got a bit of a feel for what a pilgrimage is. Now it'd be nice to be able to focus in on your individual journeys that you've created. And and I'll, I'll go to you, John, first of all, with your Lakeland pilgrimage. Can you describe the motivation of your journey, where you go, and what's the character of it? So the origins really lay uh, a year previous to it when I did a very long journey across the length of the Alps. It's basically following the northern border of Italy. Um, so from Slovenia through to the south coast of France, over the top, so I did 60 summits. And it was a fantastic journey. And really, I thought I'd love to replicate something like that, but right at home, starting from my doorstep rather than having to travel halfway across the world. So this pilgrimage was very much set up for me in mind, not for anybody else, purely for me. What route does it take? Well, it's, it's pretty difficult to describe. It's about 175 miles and it wends its way in not exactly a circle, but obviously I end up at the same point. It takes in some of the major, well, most of the major summits. It was actually designed around linking what I call the natural cathedrals of the Lake District. So these are the great crags of the lakes, because for me, this is about the journey. It's not about the destination. Often a pilgrimage is designed around going to a holy place, a cathedral. Well, the, the lake just doesn't really have those great big holy places. And for me, it's not about that. Often, if you get to this holy place, it's an anticlimax. For me, it's about the whole experience. Everywhere is holy on this journey. The cathedrals are spaced out, so there were seven of them on the route. So places like Pillar Rock, Scarfell Crag, uh, the Napes on Gable, all these amazing places of awe to build those in. The other elements I wanted to build in were actually some of the famous hostelries because there's a there's a history to them and it's part of the whole culture of the area. So places like Wasdale Head Inn, the old Dungeon Guild. So how many iconic places could I build into this varied journey? The other element for me was the ability to sleep on the mountain. I think when you're actually sleeping on a mountain, you're intimately connected. You're actually touching the ground so I definitely wanted that to be part of it one of the things the Lake District's really got is this great diversity of landscapes in a very small area but some of the best places really need seeking out so the pilgrimage tries to incorporate some of those places there's there's one place in Estale with a you probably know it but it's got this fantastic waterfall which jumps into a pool very um very Icelandic absolutely amazing yes it's only 10 meters from the path but i bet 95 percent of people miss that and there's some amazing places perhaps some of the lovely little tarns that people would know so like hard tarn for example beneath beneath the nethermost pike no a little jewel in the landscape try and build those things in yeah i love hard tarn and nethermost cove and ruthick cove those hanging valleys they harbour a great deal of the spirit, the sanctuary feel of the fells. To give you an idea, when I was there in those places you've just mentioned, in those coves, you know, it was an idyllic morning. It was um, 
five o'clock in the morning, I think. So you've got the sunrise coming over the coves and it's what you know you dream of really these moments and the little tarns twinkling in the in the in the sunlight you talk about the physical journey but truly this is an intention to be close spiritually the various relationships you're observing between the intimate and the grand can you explain a little bit about that to me absolutely before I do that, I think I'd just like to touch on something which I think is quite important in this respect, in that you can make it more likely to experience some of these things, but you can't force them. You can't force a spiritual experience. And so you may go with preconceptions about you know, when you're going to experience, what sort of place you're going to experience these things. But you're, you may be disappointed in certain times. So it's better actually to go with a totally open mind and just experience what is as you go. It's like people who come to the latest and go to Wattenlust and find the surprise view, which might be a surprise, but because they've been told it's a surprise view, it's probably it's not quite a surprise. <laughs> Indeed, or it might be pouring down with rain and that lovely sunrise you anticipated did not transpire. On the reverse, you may get things that you really didn't expect. So when I go on a journey like this, it's best to set out in hope and not to overplan things. Allow yourself to be surprised. Just turning to my own personal journey, when did I experience these moments? Well, I certainly had some sunrises like the one I just explained. And why are these moments, the sunrise and the sunset, particularly important you know, in terms of the spiritual experience? It's almost like it's, it's a richer experience. During the height of the day, the light is quite brash almost. You can't see as much because there's too much sun. As you get near at the ends of the day, you see the full range of colour. I think we've all experienced it. There's a certain feeling at those times, an ambience about the day is softer in a lot of ways. They are spiritual experiences at those times of day. Night is another time. Again, we're not used to experiencing these things in, in modern day life. Again, you're sleeping on the mountain. Even if there are no stars, you're experiencing something totally different. Uh, I mean, I sometimes just, you know, go in a bivy bag on the mountain. And so you're feeling the wind on your face. There's the noises of the night. And it's a special experience. You're, you're starting to engage because it's not familiar with your everyday. So the second part of your question on the intimates side, the small and the big, one of the things I've always observed is that there are patterns in the big and the small that are exactly the same. I mean, we know this. If you look at the veins in a leaf, it's very much like a river system, for example, at a, at a much bigger scale. You can see that on rocks, in the pattern of rocks are reflected in a huge cliff. It's very much like that. And, um, and you come across things like, I do remember when I was in uh, coming down into Estale, there was this tree growing out of one of the boulders. Now, if you start to look at it, you don't think, well, that's just a tree. But it was astounding. You know, it's finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. Well, thank you very much, John. That was really interesting. Now, Stephen, I think as near as we've got to a patron saint from Cumbria, is St. Kentigan. Can you give us a little bit of a background to 
who this saint was, uh, give a historical perspective on him. First of all, we have to say is there is not much in the way of historical evidence for him, but his name is written in the landscape and the legends and stories about him, which on balance we can say he was a real person living sometime in the late 500s after the Romans had gone into the early 600s. Um, I got caught up in him because his name is in the valley where I live. I live in Mungrisdale. Mungrisdale means uh, the valley of Mungo. Mungo was his other name, by the way. He was Brythonic. You have to remember there was a time there was no Scotland, there was no England, there was no Cumbria. There was a kingdom of uh, Strathclyde based up in Dumbarton. Reged, the kingdom of Reged, was a client kingdom of that area. Most historians of the time would say you could walk from the lowlands of Scotland right down the northwest of England, down to the west of England, down into Wales, and you would make yourself understood because everybody spoke the same language, Brythonic language, not that dissimilar to modern Welsh. Um, so sometime around about in the, the early 500s, Kentigern was born somewhere uh, not far from North Berwick on the uh, bottom of a hill known as Traprain Law. Classic story of um, early sainthood where they tried to make him, the hagiographer of him, tried to make him as saintly as possible and as Christ-like as possible. You know, he's born into suspicious circumstances of his parenthood. Um, and so there's a fascinating story emerges about him. But he eventually ends up being at a monastery at Kulros as a young man. He's born on the coast there and eventually moves to Glasgow and sets up a monastery there, uh, meets up with a hostile local chieftain who says, you're out of it, I don't like what you're up to. And he has to leave and goes into exile and heads south. And this is where he enters the Cumbrian story. Um, on his way, apparently heading south, again, this is the legend, to goes to meet with his kinsman at St. David's, who was also his uh, contemporary. St. Columba is also his contemporary on Iona. He goes to St. David's, but on his way down, he passes through Cumbria and says, we've kind of lost the plot here in Christianity. We've lapsed. We've fallen back into paganism. The early missionary work of Ninian, a hundred years before, has fallen by the wayside. And he apparently encounters uh, remnants of Christian communities around the northern fells. He evangelizes there, goes and out and meets up with people and establishes or re-establishes churches before he continues his path back south again, where eventually he, he lives in Wales for a while, moves back north, sets up the monastery at St Asaph on his way north and then moves back through Cumbria and eventually crosses back over what is now the border to establish a monastery at Hoddam, which became a major ecclesiastical centre, and eventually moves back to Glasgow, where towards the end of his life he meets up with Columba, comes to visit him from Iona, and they have this great celebration of these two saints meeting, and so on, the story unfolded. I got into it because I was... Uh, I became, it's true to say, probably obsessed with it. I, I wanted to go where he was born. I wanted to visit the sites, many of which are now in ruination start in, in Scotland, but there are plans to try and uh, reinvigorate them. And then just this whole notion of recognising that somehow there was this circuit of churches around the Northern Fells. Unlike John, I'm not quite so brave as jumping up and down mountains like Schofield. I don't do it as easy as I used to do. So maybe unconscious a bit, well, this would be a bit of an easier pilgrimage because I'm not going up and down mountains, but you can divert easily off route if you want to. And I found myself, I couldn't 
stop it. I wanted to know the language he spoke, so I, I taught myself a few of the basic words. I looked at the place names he was associated with at the churches. You get into archaeology, you get into nature. So that I was captured by the whole thing. And I wanted to create a pilgrimage route that you could either, it's about 100 miles if you walk it on foot. I also tried to map it out so that if you can't walk but wanted to drive or on a bicycle, you could do it that way as well. You know, I wanted to be receptive to pilgrimages being accessible to the disabled as well. And, and just to be clear, Steve, this is your route, the Kentigan Way, which links churches. I use the churches as the hook, if you like, as the pattern. And it happens to go on a beautiful circuit right around the northern fells. So you can start and finish at any point. If I start off here with the village of Mungrysdale, you've got St Kentigans in Mungrysdale. Then you've got the uh, Church of Kentigan at Castle Sowerby. Then you've got Kentigan's Church in Colbeck. Then you've got one at Grinsdale just outside Carlisle, but it takes you past Carlisle and through the city centre itself. So you veer from beautiful Cumbrian landscapes into the inner city with all that that brings to you. Can you find God going down some gritty back street of Carlisle as much as you can, sitting in a beautiful church by the level. From Grinsdale, you head south towards Great Orton. There's a church there, which is a St Giles Church. Why is a St Giles Church in it? Well, by accident, completely by accident, I went in there for a prayerful moment because it broke the journey to Bromfield, where there's a St Kentigan Church there. And I'm sitting in there, and I see a stained glass window of St Kentigan. And then I read the history, and I realise St Giles Church was originally the St. Kentigan Church. It was renamed by the Normans. Then you head to, uh, to Bromfield from Great Orton and from Bromfield to the church at East Deerham. And then, of course, you've got the long stretch from East Deerham right across to St. Kentigan's Church just outside Keswick, Crossgate. And, um, you know, that, that is a mighty stretch there, but it takes you across a wonderful landscape right along past Bassenthwaite and you end up in Keswick and then come along via Castlerigg and end up back at Munger Isdale again. What I find with pilgrimage by walking around those churches is that wonderful combination of movement and then stopping in them for stillness. And actually you may well find after a while, while you're moving and walking, that mesmeric quality to it is, you're still, while you're walking, there is stillness in the movement. That, to me, is when pilgrimage becomes a prayer. Now, John, we've experienced your journey. It's a fascinating journey. But when you came home, or when you returned from it, and from similar kinds of journeys of that nature, what do you take home with you? I actually find it useful to reflect on the experience. Because otherwise, there's the danger that they just become a retreat from life. Oh, that was nice while it lasted during the week, but two weeks in, nothing's changed. I'm still in the, the throes of everyday life. Whereas if you can actually reflect and think, OK, what did I learn from that journey and how can I apply that in my everyday life, you know, to be a better person, to, to have a more fulfilled life? And I think that reflection and taking time to reflect is really important. And so there, there are things like when you meet people, often you discover, actually, when, when you're on a, a long journey like that, you tend to focus on what we've got in common rather than our differences. And I would actually contend in everyday life, we're always looking at our differences between us. And that's, that's totally different in, on, on a long journey like, like this. We get on with all sorts of people. 
And so that's an example of a sort of thing that we can actually take back and, and think, OK, you know, I can get on with these people, actually. I do that myself. Whenever I'm on the fell, I meet people and I immediately seek that engagement. Absolutely. The reciprocity is always there. And it's almost like recharging your batteries as well. That then keeps you actually going for quite a time. You've had this experience and it, it stays with you for, for a while. What struck me about my experience of pilgrimage was, although, for example, the Kentigan Spill, which is about 100 miles long, by far the longest journey is into yourself, which doesn't require a distance being travelled by feet. The Meister Eckhart saying uh, this real spiritual journey is, uh, is only an inch long, but it's a mile deep. And what I found was pilgrimage is not about, as John touched on, it's not about you just going out there and having a nice time, fresh air, praying and meditating and having a lovely spiritual time. It's not about spiritual self-pleasuring. Where does it take you when you return into knowing yourself more deeply, being a nicer person in your family, informing your path of service in the wider world, whatever that might be, great or small. So I think one thing that, pilgrimage does well it moves us physically it moves us on in terms of expanding our consciousness our relationship with the divine our reason for being here one thing that what struck me was after that first long one that I took from my owner to Glasgow I thought I'd taken a pilgrimage and what I always find now is a pilgrimage it's the pilgrimage that took me so in that sense in answer to your question what do you get when you come home what I realize is I'm always coming home there is no end to it. It's better to travel than to arrive. And in a pilgrimage, you are yeah. always travelling. Yeah. It's process rather than outcome, being receptive to it. Two other things about pilgrimage that are really important when you get back are a sort of greater resilience. If it's been a, a difficult journey, you know, you know, I can do this. I've been stretched. And you can then apply that to other aspects of life, not just physical things. And secondly, your priorities can be reassessed. You know, it's time out from the busyness, the demands of life. And when you get back, actually, you come to realise some of those things are maybe not as important as you thought they were. We hear much about the church that is dying. And in many respects, the established churches is dying in some respects. But if you look at the what I think it can be true to say there's been an absolute boom in pilgrimage. And it doesn't mean you have to go off to Santiago de Compostela to do it. What we're learning is from work of people like John and myself and others is it's where you are now. You, you, get, you don't have to travel far to do a rich and deep pilgrimage. And to me, it's a form of church. It's, it, you know, Christianity isn't necessarily dying in one particular form in the sense that it's also being recreated and developed in other forms. And as you can see in this present age, where long journeying, probably an aircraft or whatever, is going to be hampered for years to come, this notion of roaming from home, having pilgrimages of your own within your own community on broader community, will actually start to play an important healing, connecting purpose. Right, we've come to that exciting time for our quickfire questions. John, what was the favourite moment on your pilgrimage it's a while ago now so i'm trying to think what it was there are a number of moments i think rather than one standout moments the little things like seeing that tree i mentioned on the boulder was one special moment other moments 
you know, sunrise moments, watching the mists part over Derwent Water early in the morning, the, those those sorts of things. The awe of being beneath Pillar Rock, of being on the napes when the mists are again just, just passing. There, there are lots of different moments, so I wouldn't actually like to pick out one. Uh, Stephen? Yeah, like John, it's difficult, but in terms of the Kentigan pilgrimage, I think a high spot would have been discovering the Kentigan Church of St Giles stroke Kentigan and sitting there and feeling that tremendous sense of humility that here am I organising this, da, 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 but generations of people before me have taken his name and they found their place of worship. I'm just part of a trail of people here. And I, I came, really came home to me as being part of something much bigger than myself. We'll skip now. I'll go back to John. What's your low point on your particular journey, your Lakeland pilgrimage? Uh, low points. Uh, being in the pouring rain, being absolutely drenched at times for a long period of time. You know, if you get a few days like that, one after the other, then you know, you're human. You're, go you're going to feel that. <laughs> Stephen, did you have a, a, a particular low point? Yes, it definitely was. The third time I was walking the Kentigan pilgrimage was doing the stretch from Colbeck to Grinsdale, just west of Carlisle, which is the longest single stretch, depending on the route you take, and getting up to Dalston and then plodding on to Carlisle, also in the pouring rain, and realising I'm not going to make this. I got to the point where I could no longer feel my legs. I'd gone beyond pain, and I had to surrender and give way and realise I'm going to have to get the train home. I cannot carry on walking and someone's going to pick me up. So I took the train back to Penrith and my partner collected me. And that sense of feeling defeated and realising I'm getting older and I cannot walk. So that yeah, I would say that was a... But it was a rich teaching, you know, a rich teaching. It didn't really matter in the end. But yes, certainly that sense of, oh, God, I'm defeated. I can't walk this. Here's me writing a book about it for other people to do. And, I'm, and my knees are giving way in Carmel. But OK, let's do it. Oh, amazing. I, I have been to that church. It's a closed church. It's uh, uh, on the banks of the East. It's a lovely location. Uh, John, what was your first Lakeland memory? Oh, it's when I wasn't living here, I suppose. I grew up in Worcestershire, so quite a long way from the lakes. But we did come with my father, actually, on a, a week here, which was extraordinary. I must have been about 14. And we stayed in this caravan uh, near Threlkel. And um, the weather was absolutely appalling. I can remember that. It was an Easter week and the caravan was rocking all over the place. And <laughs> we particularly had these incredibly strong winds once. And we went up Scarfell Pike and the wind literally blew me about 20 metres. I can remember it was 80 miles an hour, this wind, definitely. And it was snow on the top. It was foul. <laughs> I don't think I would go out in conditions like that these days. Stephen. I do have a particular early memory of the lake. Oh, yes. I mean, it would be the first time I came here when I was 15 years old. And it was that age, you know, that, oh, gosh, adolescence, please, never again. Any road up, to cut a long story short, I was on a coach trip with my mum and dad. And we were going to the uh, Kyles of Butte. So we stopped off at the lakes on the way north. This was before the motorway. And we stayed in a and b in the coach tour near Windermere. And I woke up that next morning. I was on a coach full of all old people, as they were to me then at the age of 15. 
I had far better things I wanted to do at the age of 15 than being a coach load of 60-odd-year-olds, including my parents. And I woke up in the morning and I looked out my bedroom window and the sound of the Lake District waking up, the hills beyond, the jackdaws calling, the smell of the air, the chimney smoke. And I remember saying to myself then, I will live here someday. I'm going to live here. I would go so far as to say it felt like a calling. It was like you will live here. A couple of decades later, it happened. I'm sure many of our listeners will tie in with you in that sentiment. We all have that one moment where you think, I want to be in the lakes. That's home. John, have you a favourite fell? Again, I don't like to, to tie it down to one particular because there are different moments and different moods which, which suit. I actually like Scarfell Pike because it's a very varied mountain. It's almost like a little range in itself. But, you know, I like my local hill, a little hill called Whiteside Pike just up the road. I go there nearly every day. I've been up it over a thousand times. So I've got to like it. I remember doing the Bannersdale circuit once, going to Grey Crag and coming back by a Whiteside Pike and thinking, this is a lonely spot. (laughs) I rarely see anybody on Whiteside Pike, it has to be said. Oh, you missed me. (laughs) Uh, Stephen, have you a favourite hill? Oh, yeah, no doubt there, Carrickfell taking the route up from Mosdale End and just getting up there. Just get your head down, go up the steep slope. And it was my habit on my birthday to stay off overnight up there. I haven't done it now for several years, but now it's still, I feel a tremendous sense of being at home there. The views are magnificent, uh, the, the rich, deep history of the place. Um, yes, Carrickfell, no doubt. Yeah, we've had that with uh, one of our other guests, Julia Aglenby, identified it as our favourite. Oh, Julia, I love Julia, yeah. I love that ascent through the heather, onto that wonderful necklace of stones on the summit, which just, uh, it shouts that people have come to this place as a sacred place. The Ordnance Survey Market is a hill fort, but actually it's a sacred place. Absolutely. Much more than a hill fort. John, have you a favourite church or chapel in Lakeland? Yes, my local one, actually, Long Slevel, which is in an astonishingly beautiful situation looking up the valley. It's very, very natural around there. It's only three miles from where I live. I've seen it in all seasons. And there's a sense of, of, of peace about that place that I've rarely sensed elsewhere. Stephen, have you got one particular that you think is close to your heart? Well, close to my heart is here in Munger Eisdale, St Kentigan's Church, even though during lockdown I felt in some respects to revisit my whole relationship to church, but that's the actual building of a church. There's our lovely little church in Munger Eisdale. I love the idea that it's obviously a late building, has its roots in Kentigan's ministry in the sixth century. But also what what I particularly love about it is the smell of it (laughs) and the fact that it's one of the few churches in the Lake District where something happened with our ancestors. They said, we don't need any stained glass here. And you just sit there and the magnificence of the valley is all around you. It's as if somebody had the sense to say, no, we don't have to colour it all in. Just look out, look out there and you'll see all that you need to see. Yes. So, yes, my local little church is will do me just fine. It's a humble little church, but really appropriate and perfect vernacular for the place right the final question then john when the day comes and your family and friend carry your ashes 
to a given spot. Is there one particular place that you would like to be uh, left and linger into eternity? I think if that happened, it would have to be Whiteside Pike, somewhere, somewhere local. And the beauty about Whiteside Pike for all those that have been up there, it's it's right at the southern end of the lake, so it overlooks Kendall, but it, it looks over uh, Long's Level as well. It's a very, very good viewpoint. It's not too far to go, so it wouldn't be requiring people to go very far. And, you know, it's become part of me. It's where I live, and I think that's important. And Stephen, have you got a, a lingering place for yourself? Um, I, I'm going to be awkward because I'd want to be buried, you see, so that's going to be slightly awkward. Uh, ideally, I'd be really quite content with a simple grave in Munger Isdale Churchyard with a simple slab on top with nothing fancy. Failing that, if that's not possible, because Munger Isdale Churchyard is awfully full, just stick me in a field somewhere and stick a yew tree on the top and I'd be fine anywhere in the Lake District. Well, I have to say I am overjoyed with the pleasure of both of your companies, John and Stephen, I've been on a journey just talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Journey's end, we've walked many, many miles, and I thought that was very, very interesting, Mark. One has this notion that one is not a religious person oneself. We connect with a place and draw out something special from it, and it's how we interpret it is very important, and we have our own mechanisms for doing that. But genuinely, experiencing the outdoors it is a magical thing and it lives with us people who listen regularly to the podcast will know that i absolutely love long distance walking the longest walk i did from land's end to john o'groats i do think by the towards the end of it and i'd say the last couple of weeks you almost fall into this meditative state i absolutely relate to that and, and John mentioned about routine and simplicity, and it's true. All you had to do was get up every morning and walk. You didn't have to make any complicated life decisions. I wasn't able to worry about things like the bills because I, I couldn't. You know, there's nothing I could do about any of that. All you had to do was to walk in whatever weather. And, I mean, other people who do walks like this talk about kind of a zen-like state that you get into. I can't explain it any better than that. And as I say, I mean, I am, I'm not a person of faith, really. But it uh, did get me thinking about that. I don't, I don't, what about you, Mark? Do you have spiritual moments on the fells? Uh, I, I haven't a great deal, but I have these occasional moments where you see something outrageously amazing and you think, gosh, there are moments in your life and when you're out walking, you get those moments. There are a few things that we should highlight. The British Pilgrimage Trust uh, keeps a list of pilgrimage routes in the UK and all of the Cumbrian routes are on there so you can find that at britishpilgrimage.org um, and they've also just produced a book as well called Britain's Pilgrim Places which again we should um, flag up for those who are interested in exploring this further. We should say also that you can 
acquire a book of the Kentigan Way from Stephen, and John has done a fabulous website uh, relating to his Lakeland pilgrimage. We'll put both of those links onto the webpage if people are interested in finding out more. Housekeeping, we are on episode... 47. 47, keep getting closer to the big 5-0. For all of our previous episodes, you can find them at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can also support the podcast financially by buying uh, books there, walking books and other merchandise. We are on social media, Mark. At Countrystride 1. Yes, Facebook and Twitter. And after a period of uncertainty, which is not uncommon in the world at the moment, we have decided on our next few podcasts, Mark. So, very briefly... Well, I think we're going to get youthful with our next one. I think we're going to get one or two students to give us some conversation about their lives and being in the outdoors. And and then we'll look at Hadrian's Wall on a virtual walking tour, as it were, with uh, David Breeze, who is a good friend of mine. Uh, who anybody who knows anything about Hadrian's Wall or Roman history will um, know that he is Mr. Big when it comes to anything to do with Hadrian's Wall. So that'll be lovely. Oh, a, a Roman wall, Mr. Big. Now you've got me excited. We're going all over the place. We're going from pilgrimage to young people to Hadrian's Wall. There we go. That's, uh, that shows the diversity of subjects that Country Stride is not afraid to tackle. But for now, Mark, we're bidding farewell and I'll join you in a couple of weeks' time. Brilliant. And thank you all for listening. It's been great fun. Bye.